Welcome to the Wealth Edit Podcast, a place where talking about finances is only polite. We talk to women and hear the stories behind how they've built their beautiful lives, whether that be inside or outside the home. Join us every week as we talk ambition, determination, and success with some of the most interesting, powerful women in the Southeast and beyond. All right, guys, we're so excited to have Zandra Jones on today. Zandra has, um, is the Community Foundation Senior Program Officer, and uh, she's here in Birmingham, Alabama, and we're super excited to have her. I know just as the Senior Program Officer, you manage about at least $1.5 million in grant money that you work with and distribute to different organizations around town. So we can't wait to hear about that and all that you get to see and know um, in that role. And um, let's see, I think we just wanted to get started because I am so excited about this conversation. Zandra and I had the opportunity to talk yesterday for a little bit and she just has so much wisdom to give us. Uh, you really do as we, you know, the current events that are going on and as we think through how we can be a part of the solution. So with that being said, why don't you just start out a little bit about telling us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up in the nonprofit world. Sure. Well, thank you so much, Emily. It was great speaking with you yesterday. Um, since I met you and Lauren, I've been really excited about what you all do and just really appreciative of this opportunity to speak to women who are working to get their finances together, get comfortable with money, because um, it's a really important subject. I am actually from Birmingham, grew up here, born in Texas, but I went, you know, spent most of my formative years here, then went to school in DC, and I was poised for a corporate career. Did that for a little while and realized it just wasn't for me, um, so I spent a few years pursuing, making other pursuits. Um, I have always had an interest in the entertainment industry, um, but it was actually working in entertainment that I was exposed to nonprofit work and the power of nonprofits, charity, um, celebrity, and all of those kinds of things working together to make a difference for the lives of other people. So I moved back to Birmingham about 10 years ago, 10 or 11 years ago from Los Angeles. Um, and eventually found my way into the nonprofit sector, first working uh, in direct services. Um, I became a member of a group called the Birmingham Change Fund, which was really instrumental in introducing me to philanthropy here. Um, and um, because of the Change Fund and some work that I was doing with them, I ended up in Birmingham City Schools doing some research and was really stunned by what I saw. Um, my experience and what I was seeing kids experiencing just so different um, and I thought unfair and it led me to do what I do now which is consistently ask questions around why disparities exist and why situations are as they are um, and at the Community Foundation we try to work with nonprofit organizations that are finding solutions and trying to answer those questions um, so it's a it's a great gig. And what kind of um, programs does the Community Foundation fund? Yeah, so we, um, the Community Foundation, we have a couple of different pools of funds. So we have a, a ton of donor advised funds where donors are able to direct dollars to a number of different causes and organizations that they care about. 
Um, but we also have endowed dollars. Um, and those dollars, some of them have been endowed since our inception. And it's through those that we grant about two and a half million dollars a year to nonprofits doing a lot of different work in the community. So for the last 10 years prior to this year, we were working through what we called our results framework um, and granting dollars in arts and culture, vibrant city center type work, um, workforce development, direct services to vulnerable families, uh, the kind of work that you would associate with kind of charity, if you will. Um, in this current year, we have moved to our new strategic plan where we are focusing on organizations that do work within five categories. And those are regional cooperation, equity and inclusion, developing thriving communities, fostering, um, I, saw, I said fostering equity and inclusion, um, economic opportunity for all, and overcoming persistent poverty. Wow, that's a, um, that's a tall order. Tell me about it. <laughs> That's we have a lot of really hardworking nonprofits in, in our region, though, so we're just trying to support them in doing that work. Um, okay, so now that, um, like, when somebody wants to receive a grant from the Community Foundation, do they give an application, or is it something that y'all seek out within the community? Yeah, it's, we have an application process, so okay. it's twice a year, typically, that we open up our grant process, and organizations that fall within those categories apply. Okay, and so how has all of this changed since COVID-19? Have you seen a huge shift in how you're evaluating how the money's allocated? Yeah, so, you know, this was our first year of our rollout of our new strategic plan with those five priorities that I just mentioned. Um, so we were very excited but uh, COVID-19 hit everybody in, in March um, and paused a lot of plans, including ours. And so we redirected all of our dollars to respond to COVID and to support organizations that were either doing direct to COVID or organization do some sort of adaptation work um, in order to work from home or just modify their work. Um, and so in the rest of this year, we're still trying to figure out how our dollars will be spent. Most likely they will still be redirected, um, and, uh, but, but we're figuring out how we can broaden it to include a wider swath of organizations, including those that are not necessarily responding to COVID. But the crisis hit hard and organizations had to shuffle, and so we wanted to be responsive to that. So the events of the last few months with COVID-19, George Floyd's death have revealed so many racial and social socioeconomic disparities that exist in our nation. What would you say is the best first step in becoming an ally to help support racial justice? That's a great question. I, um, you know, and I'm glad that you mentioned it. It's, it, it's so true. I think when we were responding to COVID-19, like so many of you, you, we were seeing these disparities kind of all over the place. Um, African Americans and people of color were being hit worse by the disease um, and were suffering greater fatalities. Businesses that are owned by minorities, African Americans who are working on the front lines at grocery stores or in service-oriented jobs were at greater risk. And um, it really revealed 
in a way that it couldn't be disputed, the disparities that exist for us as a country. And then, as you mentioned, the murder of George Floyd um, and Ahmaud Arbery before him and Breonna Taylor before her, and those three just within that short time span um, really amplified that, that issue that um, original sin, I think, is what everyone keeps calling it. Um, and, and I received a lot of questions around how can I be an ally? How can I help? And there's so many different things that you can do to help. Um, but, but one of the things that resonates with me is a practice that we've been engaging in at the foundation. And it's called reading reality truthfully so that you can respond responsibly. And that really has to do with being willing to be honest and look at history, look at facts, look at impact, um, and understand why disparities exist. And so I encourage everyone to, as they work toward reading reality truthfully, really seek out information. Um, a lot of this is just stuff that we weren't taught in the history books. Um, and you know, it's, it's interesting being African-American people always kind of assume, oh, because you're black, you can educate me or you can help me or you can, and that onus and responsibility is not necessarily on me. So taking that responsibility on yourself requires you to educate yourself. And so I think that's a really good first step. Yeah. Sandra, okay, let's say that again. Reading reality truthfully and being willing to, what's the second? So that you can respond responsibly. Awesome. I think that's such a good word because I was thinking it was someone like the Gates Foundation that does such, such great work, but you know, they their initial response to the um, pandemic is like, just stay at home, like just socially distance until we have a vaccine. And I was like, well, because I'm so privileged, like that works for me, our office can operate from home, but who doesn't that work for? You know, like what part of our mm -hmm. country does that situation, that suggestion really exclude? And how can we then think critically about how um, we can stay safe as a nation, but also like think about those people, you know, who have to work hourly in a, not in a, in a warehouse, in a wherever restaurant, wherever they're working. I mean, I just have never felt so burdened as like, and this was, you know, throughout the pandemic of like, yeah, we could probably do this forever. And um, while fortunate for me, that's not the case for everybody. Yeah. And that's, I think where it starts asking those questions rather than just kind of looking around and being like, oh, this is great for me being willing and thinking about your neighbor and asking this question of, well, why isn't this the case for them and what happens then? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I just feel like I really have been moved by the events and you and I talked about this a little bit yesterday. It's like, it's so fascinating to me. Like a lot of these things have always been kind of swirling around us, you know, the racial tensions and the lack of knowledge and, but like right now, and like you and I talked, maybe it's the COVID, you know, maybe it's because we were all at home and we had the attention to give it. Um, but it just has sparked, you know, just that desire inside of me to realize like, I need, I need to be learning. Just like you said, it's on me. It's not on you. Um, and I was reading this book, White Fragility. And I mean, like in the introduction, I mean, the, one of the first things it said is it's like, it's not enough to just say you're not racist. 
Like it's not enough. It, you have to be willing to be a part of the solution and to make decisions that help you be a part of the solution rather than just being like, oh, well, you know, I'm not, so that's great, you know? And I just, yeah. that has just really hit home um, for me and just, I love hearing you reiterate that because it is, it's just about us taking on the responsibility to learn and to be a part of the solution. So, mm -hmm. um, okay. So another thing that we talked about yesterday, which I just thought was fascinating. I mean, now that you say it, I see it, but can you talk a little bit about how philanthropy, philanthropy can work to support social justice? Like how do those two things work together? Yeah, um, that's a really interesting question. And it's one that I've been asking, um, one that we've been asking at the foundation, and certainly one that those who are social justice kind of warriors, activists, practitioners, and thinkers have been talking about lately. Um, and so for me, if you imagine philanthropy and this spectrum, on one end you have charity which is where you're giving dollars toward the relief of um, people's pain. Uh, so think about um, a lot of what we did in COVID-19 response was helping people to get enough food or helping people to pay their bills, um, helping organizations do that. And so we were providing immediate relief and we consider that kind of your charity, charitable giving. On the other end of that spectrum is justice. And um, it's where instead of you're helping someone maybe be comfortable within the problem, you're trying to solve the problem. And so it is looking deeper, asking questions of why, trying to get to underlying root causes um, to alleviate those issues and ills kind of these intractable really difficult to solve problems they haven't been solved in the last 50 years through this charitable giving model of just kind of helping and being nice um and in a lot of ways philanthropy and giving in that way has probably exacerbated the problem if if you you know in a small way um and i say in a small way because we are really a small part of this whole capitalistic system right but um in, in that way, philanthropy, as it moves closer toward justice and asking those questions of how and why and how do we actually find solutions to the problems? How do we look at the system? How do we um, come up with new policies and practices and look at resource flows and where relationships lie? Um, when we ask those kinds of questions, then we're moving more toward justice and supporting efforts of social justice um, that get us toward greater equity in our community. And in our conversation, you talked about the importance of nonprofit organizations incorporating lived experience into their leadership. Can you yeah. explain that concept a little bit more? Sure. I think it's a part of the same thing. You know, what we um, have seen historically from nonprofits and just from this sector in general is it's been very patriarchal, very uh, savior complex. Um, we know what's best and so we'll come in and tell you what to do and how to solve your problem. Um, as opposed to looking at the, again, root causes, policies and practices that have enabled certain challenges in the community. And then looking at the people who are dealing with those challenges and actually asking them how do we solve this? Um, it reminded me actually when Emily was talking about 
how she got involved in this work, and I know this is the same for you, Lauren, um, it was about wanting to meet a need of women, right, that you didn't see being met in the broader marketplace because you could identify with their needs, right? And so I personally, as a program officer, um, want to see nonprofit organizations that are led by people of color if they're serving people of color or that are incorporating people of color in their leadership and on their board. Um, otherwise, I, I'm not sure that you're necessarily resonating as deeply with the issue um, that, that you're empathizing. And, and it's, yeah, it's, I think in this culture that we see now, um, it's necessary. Mm-hmm. When I can see that, just like like you said, from my own personal experience, I mean, as a widow, there's just something about the organizations that are led by other widows. I mean, they get it. They mm-hmm. they yeah. know what it feels like. They see it, and there's just a lot of power there. And um, yeah, it makes so much sense. It's almost like why <laughs> have we missed this for so long? You know? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah I agree. And that's not to say that. So now you don't do business with anyone unless they're also a widow, right? (laughs) But it's just that understanding. And um, we haven't seen that really in the nonprofit sector. It's largely been pretty homogenous. That's, I mean, that's really what we've tried to do through, through the Wealth Edit is like create these different paths. At the Wealth Edit, you have these glide paths and there's a good chance there's more that are unexplored. So, you know, if, if for our members, if you see something that we're missing or there's a different point of view that we can highlight, that, that's the whole reason that we exist. We have a lot of data points based on our financial planning experience over the last 13 years, but that doesn't mean we have all the perspectives covered and it, we are very committed to covering them. So anyway, that's, um, we hope to do that too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've found diversity of is only going to strengthen your position. Yeah, I think so too. And what questions should we be asking the organizations that we want to donate our time and money to, to make sure they're incorporating this concept into their framework. So like incorporating the, lived experience, leadership, all of that? Um, well, what I do as a program officer um, is visit with nonprofits oftentimes. So before we make grants, we're actually asking questions and having interviews. And so of course you want sound financials and you want to kind of understand that. Um, but I think you are really just being direct in asking them who they serve and um, how their voices, how the voices of the people that they serve are incorporated in their decision-making, how they are incorporated in their leadership, and that goes for um, their executive team, if they're large enough to have a team, or um, the board of directors. Um, A lot of times we hear people say, oh, we don't know anybody to put on the board. That's a diverse candidate. That's unfortunate and really unacceptable if you're serving people you know you can put one of them on your board (laughs) so it's um it's just a matter I think of comfort and familiarity and I think the more of us that are asking these questions and helping nonprofits to think about it in a different way um the better off all of us are and certainly the better off um our nonprofit sector is as a whole yeah, we we see the same thing. Um, you know, you see it a lot in business too. Like people are like, "Oh, we don't have a woman to put on the board." Mm-hmm. 
that is just not true. You know what I mean? Like right. there's so many highly, and that's what we said, um, Katrina's here. So I'm going to give her a little shout out, but like we were in leadership Birmingham this year together. I'm like, Oh, call me. I have about 20. If someone wants to start with our little Rolodex and that's just me thinking for 30 seconds, I'm sure if you gave me a minute and a half, there'd be more. So, and I think too, just like doing your own due diligence, does it sit well with you? If the entire board of a nonprofit is, you know, the same color, gender, whatever it is, like ask those questions. And I think the more, and again, this is part of what we do at the Wealth Edit is like have these uncomfortable conversations is like, and really empower women to ask those questions because until we ask the questions of those organizations that we support, they're not going to change. If they start getting five questions a day about like, hey, your board looks really homogenous. Like, why is that? You know, if no one's asking them, then like, certainly they're not going to change on their own because they think they're doing great. Right. And they might be doing great, <laughs> but we want to do better. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely think you have to ask those questions. And, and as a client, I know we think about this um, in the for-profit sector. You can always ask. The client is always first, but I agree. And that's not to put um, an extra burden um, on nonprofits. You know, so many of them are working with very tight budgets and doing great jobs, doing the best that they can. Um, but sometimes those thoughts and those mindsets do need to be challenged. Um, and, you know, particularly as a, as a woman that's working in finance, um, philanthropy, we do a lot with finance. Obviously, we grant out 5% of our funds, but we have 95% that's invested. And so who's investing those dollars? And why aren't there any African-American kind of investment companies that are a part of that schema? Or how many women, how many women do you know on boards? How many black women do you know on boards? Or Latino women do you know on boards? Um, I think we have to, those of us that are interested and willing, you know, that want to do this have to be intentional about advocating for each other. Mm -hmm. um, I think I, I shared with a group last week um, the phrase that I'd heard around white privilege. Um, and if you're reading white fragility, then you're probably learning about white privilege. Um, but one of the things that this woman said was about spending down your privilege. The best thing you can do is spend down your privilege. And, and so I, I love that because all of us have a different level of privilege, right? And so Sometimes I'm in rooms where other people aren't. Sometimes you're in rooms where I'm not. And am I gonna ask those questions? Am I gonna use my privilege? Am I gonna spend it in that way? Um, you could look at it as spending your social capital, if you will, um, on behalf of people who may not have the opportunity to do so. And I think this group is a great group to be able to think about intentional around doing that. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, I mean, we get, oh, sorry, I have one more comment. Like sometimes at Somerset is our private wealth management practice where Emily and I both work. That's our full-time job. Um, and, you know, people often look at us and they're like, you're so diverse. I'm like, no, we aren't. We're just a bunch of white women. You know, like we're not really that diverse. Like we might all be female, but like the diversity on your team is not as strong as certainly I want it to be. Um, and it's difficult. I mean, there's only... 14% of women who are CFPs, certified financial planners, mm -hmm. that are client facing. So 
then you, you bring that number. And fortunately it's even lower for people of color, black people. I mean, it's just low. And you know, when, when a system is built by white men for white men, like it just takes a long time, you know? And, but I think again, amplifying those voices that are minorities, um, minority voices where you can and spending your privilege, which I love that term. I've never heard that before. Um, I, I think that's just a good move where you can. I sit on a board and I was, you know, the, the token female and they're looking for new board members and they offered up like three or four other white men. I'm like, well, what about this woman? What about this one? And they were so open. Like, that's, what's so amazing about it is they're like, Oh, I didn't even think about it. And I think sometimes they're not trying to be like, no one's trying to be ugly. It's just your yeah. mind automatically jumps to people that are like you. I wish we weren't like that, but it is how we're yeah. wired. And so yeah. how do we kind of like get outside ourselves and that and think critically? And that goes back to what you said at the beginning of the call, just kind of like thinking about a situation outside of yourself. Who else does it impact? Um, I, I don't know. Those were just such good words. Yeah, thanks. And being intentional. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I, you know, just hearing about all the change that's that's going on in the world right now, I mean, you know, we're just hearing a lot of things that give us, or at least for me, I'm starting to feel hopeful that this time it's really going to make a difference, you know, and that change mm-hmm. really is going to be made. What would your advice be to us? Um, as participants in this movement of like how we can keep this momentum going? Hmm, Good question. Um, I think keep doing what you're doing. I think um, whenever you have the opportunity to amplify voices that are unique and different, just like you're doing, taking the opportunity to do that is important. Um, We've discussed asking good questions and not being afraid to do that. Um, And thinking about others in in this situation um, that are different from you, I think is just really important. Um, And it's what I see people who I think are really effective um, doing, kind of reckoning with people that are different in their experience of this. Um, That reading reality truthfully is something that we learned from an organization um, that focuses on what they call passing gear philanthropy. Um, and reading, it's, it's really a really interesting concept. And for us, it started with doing a timeline, um, of the racial history kind of, of the city of Birmingham, because a lot of times people will say, oh, well, I don't know, or I didn't know, or that's not true. But if you look at black and white facts written down, um, there are some really, indisputable um, occurrences that have taken place and that have resulted in what we see when we look out and say that we want to solve problems in our community. And so being willing to do that homework is really crucial. Um, Because if you don't understand the problem, then you might have a tendency to blame the, the person who is enduring the problem, if you will. Um, and so I think being willing to just stay honest and open to new perspectives and different perspectives and you're on the right track. Mm, that's amazing advice. 
Thank you. Well, I want to open it up to questions. Um, you can do this through the chat. Emily, you probably are, are going to be able to see the chat better than me as the host. Yeah. Um, but are there, have any questions come through the chat or if someone wants to unmute their line, um, Zandra, the, we, we don't always have questions that just always like okay. to answer. Yeah, we, I actually have one question from a member that she says she would love a list that maybe we could email later of philanthropic organizations where we can send our dollars to that would help support the social justice philanthropy in the Birmingham area specifically. Okay, so I can, so philanthropic organizations and probably nonprofits mm -hmm. that are working in the social justice space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we can definitely <clears throat> share some organizations that are doing that work. And I thought I saw someone on here. It's, um, yeah, Peter Prince looks like he's on here. And um, <clears throat> he's an arts organization, um, Space 111. And I don't know if you guys typically think of art and social justice in the same way. But Peter and his team are really, <clears throat> they're doing some great work. Um, they have been on the social justice movement, in this social justice movement for a long time, um, asking questions and using art to help people think critically about um, a variety of topics. And so they have a racial justice exhibit coming up this fall um, that I think is a great example of a nonprofit organization that is focused on social justice, um, but they bring people together to kind of talk about it and learn about it um, through the lens of art. So I can share though, I, uh, sorry for that advertisement, but I just <laughs> I love well, the work that they do. Um, since Katrina's phone, I'm gonna mention her too, because you don't often think about literacy, right? As, as something related to social justice. And I don't think that, that the Literacy Council is an uh, activist organization by any means, but literacy in and of itself is um, a right. It's something that everyone has the right to, and yet not everyone is literate. And so her organization is working on a daily basis to bring that um, gift to adults around our region. Um, so I, you know, there are a range of organizations that are doing really good work to help rectify uh, the um, challenges of the past, because that's really what a lot of this is about. And then there are advocacy organizations that are, you know, on the front lines doing what you might consider activist or social justice warrior type of work. And so we, it'll run the gamut, but I'm happy to share some names. Well, that's interesting that yet with both um, what Peter's doing and Katrina, it's so nice to have those local resources. And we feel the same way about financial literacy. I mean, that is a right, and there and more people need access to it. And if we can provide even mm -hmm. a tiny sliver of that to people, um, we would just feel so grateful in the work that we do. And as, and talking about art and social justice. Um, next week on Wealth Edit Wednesday, we are having Allison who created the Museum of Graffiti. Um, and she is, and, and think about how graffiti has always sort of like highlighted social justice throughout decades. And that's the whole point of their mm -hmm. museum. It's a for-profit museum. So that concept in and of itself, like I hadn't heard of, they were, they applied to the Pivot Fund, which is how we got to know them. Um, and that was a $25,000 grant that um, 25 women just put together. They put their dollars together and they granted it. And it was 
um, Jessica from Neo Waste, who actually was was the recipient of the grant, um, but Allison was right up there, and it, it's amazing the work that they're doing. So definitely next week, if um, Very cool. if people want an invitation, it's this Wealth Edit Wednesday is for our membership, um, but. We like to open up calls, particularly important calls like um, this one with Sandra, where we just feel like people just need to know this information, and we're so grateful that you're willing to um, share that. Now, Emily, have any other questions come in? I don't know if they have. No. So I, we just had one member that said we love to speak with our wallets as well as our actions. So thank you for yeah. the list. Sandra, <laughs> um, thank you so much. We can't help, and it, it is so gracious for you to. Um, share your knowledge and expertise with our membership. We're just just incredibly grateful. So we'll hope you'll come back and visit with us again. Yeah, thank you. Thanks Zara. so much for the invitation. This has been great. All right, talk to you later. Okay, bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you want to learn more about our website, please check us out at www.wealthedit.com. The Wealth Edit is an online membership-based community for women looking to confidently discuss and expand their knowledge of personal finance. Our community provides a space for women of all ages to gather, learn, and plan their financial journey through virtual courses, weekly guest speakers, and educational content.